Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nineteen eighty-eight, the limelight was the epicenter of New York City's nightlife. It was to the late nineteen eighties and early nineties what Studio Fifty Four was to the seventies and early eighties. Housed in a former Episcopal church, its stained glass figures of Jesus Christ and all the saints bore witness to the rise of the club kid scene, whose biggest cultural legacy is and shall always be one RuPaul Charles. Among the painted faces and avant-garde fashions of the club kids, the members of the kids in the hall stuck out like sore thumbs. Dressed in flannel shirts and high-waisted Levi's, they appeared almost radical in their squareness. They had been flown to New York City in anticipation of their HBO premiere. Months earlier, the troupe had shot a one-hour pilot, and now it was time to promote it. That night, the five members of the kids, along with producers Lauren Michaels and Joe Forrestal, broke bread with Michael Musto, nightlife columnist for The Village Voice. It was a state affair. It was, after all, a table of polite Canadian boys. Lauren mostly held court, spitting tales that featured Chevy Chase and Paul Simon. But after dinner, when the venue changed and the kids left the relative security of their show business father figure, things picked up. Musto, who had been a chronicler of the club kids scene, brought the troupe to the limelight that night. Almost immediately, they got a hold of some ecstasy. And that's when the polite Canadian veneer washed off in a deluge of perspiration and mineral water. Scott Thompson would later recall that that night on Molly culminated in Kevin MacDonald and Michael Musto feeling each other up in the corner of the club. Later, when the Village Voice piece was published, it was all in there. Musto wrote, One is gay, one is bi, and they were all on Molly. In recent years, the group recalled that night on Ron Bennington's Unmasked podcast. We all did Molly we once. Did. Remember that? Real? I did. Yeah. So. We I got in so much trouble. Not in trouble with Lauren. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> we didn't do, save any Dave from Lauren. I didn't do it that night. I just got Dave blind just got drunk. Got blind drunk. drunk. I got blind. Yeah, yeah. and we, tweaked, we, we, I tweeted we Michael Musto's we went nipples. To limelight. Kevin, you, yeah. you got you did ecstasy and you cuddled with Michael Musto. I did. I did. I did. I did. And then he panned you in the village boy. Bisexual. Yeah. He panned my cuddling. How can cuddling be panned? Yeah. How can you pan flirting? Lauren Michaels tore a strip off the troop for that article. They hadn't yet learned to be wary of the press and didn't yet know that everything they did during a profile interview was on the record. Their only real exposure before this was their recent write-up in Rolling Stone magazine's 1988 hot issue. The one with Lisa Bonet on the cover, dressed only in a man's white dress shirt. Page 112, the kids in the hall were what was hot in comedy. Journalist David Handelman wondered to his readers whether America was ready for their, quote, renegade wit. 
So what was the big deal, Scott wondered. So they did Molly, so they got cuddly. Isn't that living up to their reputation as renegade performers? And what did Lauren Michaels expect would happen when they went off to the limelight with Musto? Lauren had been Mr. New York show business for the last decade. Surely he was familiar with Musto's column and the beat he covered. And if he worried that the group came off as too gay to be palatable to a wide audience, then what would they make of their upcoming comedy special? Or the series they hoped would follow? What would they make of Buddy Cole, or running fat members of the troupe kissing on the mouth, or even Scott Thompson as an openly gay man on TV screens? Would America, or Canada for that matter, ever be ready for the kids in the hall? From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. We're back with the fourth installment in our five-part series on the kids in the hall. Last time, the siren call of SNL split the kids up, only to be brought together again by Lauren Michaels, intent on finding the troupe their own show. This is episode four, Guys in Dresses. In 30 seconds, you'll discover the super special taste, the golden crispy goodness of Mary Brown's fried chicken. With that special blend of herbs and spices, cooked in fine peanut oil as only Mary Brown knows how, with chunky taters or oh-so-tasty French fries. Ready? Go! Mary Brown's fried chicken. Nothing else comes close. Toronto, 1988. It had been months since the kids in the hall shot their special for HBO. It took destroying their dressing room, but they had managed to find their gear and perform like they knew they could. The show finally aired on HBO on October 19, 1988, at 12.25 in the a.m., following a screening of Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle. The special was a strong distillation of who they were as a group. In its opening sketch, Bruce is in his pajamas drinking milk from a jug. He hears a commotion outside his window. He looks down into the alley where he spots three Thurston Howell III types rifling through the trash like a pack of raccoons. Hey, you millionaires! They freeze. Get out of that garbage! The millionaires jump to their feet and scatter into the night. This was television audiences' introduction to the kids. It was followed by mainstays from their live shows, like Brian's Bombshell and Naked for Jesus, as well as sketches featuring Cabbage Head, Buddy Cole, and The Head Crusher. It had taken years to get to this point, to get a shot at their own show. They had been a group for five years, on Lauren Michaels' radar for three. They had broken up, some working at SNL, others at Second City. They had undergone a boot camp in New York City's comedy clubs. And now here they were, back in Toronto, still broke, and rehearsing for another live show at the Tarragon Theatre. It was like their worlds changed, but everything was somehow just the same as before. Tarragon Theater. One second, please. Mark! Mark left the rehearsal stage and walked over to the phone. Yellow? Oh, hi. Yes. I'll tell them. Mark hung up the phone and quietly said something to Catherine May, who had been standing by during the phone call. She went into the back office of the theater and reappeared with a bottle of whiskey. Mark took it from her and walked over to the rehearsal stage. 
Standing in front of the rest of the troop, he announced, We just got a series order for 20 shows. Mark took a belt off the bottle, then stiff-armed it over to Bruce. HBO and CBC had just picked them up for seven shows more than they were hoping. They all just stood there for a moment, passing the bottle of whiskey around the circle, taking swigs off the open bottle, letting the news sink in. So what do we do now? Scott asked. We have 20 more minutes in the space, Mark said. Let's finish the rehearsal. The Kids in the Hall series was budgeted at 300,000 US dollars per episode. What that meant was more producers, a writing team which included friendly faces from the past like Norm Hiscock and Paul Bellini. What it also included was a hair and makeup department. Women had always been a big part of the troupe's sketches, but on stage all the kids did when playing women was wear an oversized red sweater. Television required a little bit more. Wig designer Judy Cooper Seeley and makeup artist Jerry Wraith both came from SCTV. They were accustomed to the peculiarities of sketch comedy. But more importantly, they took the work seriously. One of the things that set the kids in the hall apart from troops that came before them was that they didn't dress up as women for laughs. Or more accurately, that wasn't the joke of the sketch. It wasn't some like it hot or tootsie. The humor wasn't derived from seeing a man in a dress. It wasn't played for camp. For all intents and purposes, when the kids were in dresses, they were supposed to be seen as women. Just characters like any other. As Dave would later say in an interview, their goal was always to have the audience forget that they were men in drag. Judy and Jerry were crucial members of the team in this regard. Hey, Jerry. Bruce started one afternoon. Does the crew call me an asshole behind my back? Seated in the makeup chair under the glare of the vanity lights, perhaps he felt more vulnerable. Jerry and Judy exchanged glances from across the room. Yes. Oh. Don't worry. If people can see you have a good heart, they'll put up with a little pissy behavior. But not all was copacetic with the production. Kevin, in particular, was struggling with the director chosen to helm the show. Robert Boyd, the series director, was a put by Lauren Michaels, a company man. Before directing the kids' pilot, his most recent credit was a mockumentary produced by Broadway Video commemorating the 50th anniversary of Superman, a TV special for which Bruce was a writer. Tonight we're going to celebrate Superman's anniversary by taking a closer look at his life here on Earth. We're going to review his greatest adventures and examine his influence on our culture. But also, we're going to go inside the actual city of Metropolis and talk to the people who know him best, the Metropolitans, so that we can better understand America's greatest superhero. Faster than a speeding bullet. But Robert Boyd didn't respect the kids equally. His sense of humor was more in line with that of Bruce and Mark, and not so much the other members of the troupe. In his book on the kids, Paul Myers recalls his brother, comedian Mike Myers' reaction when he first viewed the pilot. After having the show screened for him by Dave Foley, the younger Myers inquired, Kevin leaving the show. Why'd he say that? Dave asked. He's barely in the show. Dave later shared this feedback with Kevin, who was already feeling sidelined by his director. Aha! So I'm not crazy! He has it out for me! I don't know, maybe. For what it's worth, I don't think he likes me much either. Later, Kevin would see a cut of a sketch called The Editors, for which he felt Boyd had completely bungled the edit. That night, alone at home, Kevin drafted a poison pen letter to Boyd. It was intended to school the director on the finer points of comedy. It name-checked Buster Keaton and Woody Allen, among others. 
Kevin was going to the mattresses in defense of his sketch, which he felt Boyd was in the process of mangling. The next day, the director's assistant came to Kevin. What did you do? What? What did you say to Robert? I just wrote him a letter. Well, I don't know what you said in that letter, but he fucking hates you now. What? Boyd's tenure, however, wouldn't last long with the kids. Scott soon joined Kevin in feeling marginalized, joined by Dave's vote of non-confidence. With Boyd on the ropes, Bruce and Mark were cornered and had to side with the majority and toss their director. John Blanchard, a veteran director of SCTV, came aboard to finish out the season. show. It was 20 below zero. That's Celsius. Too cold for a night shoot. And yet, the crew of the kids in the hall were all freezing their asses off, filming a series of sketches in Toronto's Greek town. Across the street, Dave Foley and Scott Thompson stood shivering, both dressed in miniskirts and wearing over-teased wigs. They were dressed as sex workers on the clock. Okay, everyone. Director John Blanchard gathered his crew's attention. I don't know how long we can keep these guys out there in those skirts, so uh, can we get this moving along? As the camera department finalized their setup, Blanchard spotted something rather strange happening on the other side of the street. An older gentleman, a passerby, appeared to be hassling Dave. Blanchard grabbed a production assistant and sent him running across the street to get the guy off their set. When the kid got there, the old man just started arguing with him. Scott, for his part, was doubled over with laughter. Blanchard had his assistant director radio the PA. Hey Russell, what's the status of getting this guy to leave our set? Uh, I don't know. He's pretty pissed, right? Shoo him off. Come on, man. Uh, he's... Well, he's soliciting Dave. Hey, fuck you into your asshole, you fucking guy. I saw her first. Could you maybe send help? He's not listening to me. I'm worried he might hit me. Over. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Two members of the kids in the hall, Bruce McCullough, Scott Thompson. Hi, guys. Hi, Ralph. Hi, Ralph. This is like being interviewed by your brother or something. Yeah, that's Pretending right. you don't know. That's it's right. I've never met seriously. you guys before, and I don't know what to say. Actually, there's a lot of things I wanted to know. Uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you guys before the season started. I haven't at all, really, and uh, three-quarters of the way down the pipe. I'm kind of wondering... Your impressions of the difference between doing this on television and doing this on stage? I mean, there's a tremendous technical burden when you're on TV anyway, just hitting your marks and not moving while you talk, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think we've sort of learned that a little bit now. It's the technical stuff we know, so we're just sort of, I guess, trying to have more fun again. There's a lot of hype. I mean, there are all the magazines in the States and, you know, everywhere writing enormously complimentary things about you and uh, I'm, I don't know I'm sure it's great to read that once but then you have to sit down and keep writing sketches well, once I mean I, I think the same article sort of been written about about us for a few years now and I, I think even when I was in Calgary before we even had any notoriety it was the same kind of article 
with the same sort of uh, uh, examples, you know, us and other troops and, and whatnot. So I, I just hope that now, if the show works, the press will be onto something else. Yeah, they can talk about the material. They can't. Mm. Finally, they don't have to keep rewriting the Rolling Stone article. Mm. You know. So, are you happy that the season, basically, in terms of taping, is over, and that you you've got a whole bunch of work behind you? Because, I mean, on stage, you'd finally figured out exactly how you make them laugh in a live audience, and now you have to go through it all again. I guess you're relieved by that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been sort of odd for us because now about uh, eight or nine shows have aired on HBO and none have aired yet in Canada. So it's sort of like we get the odd letter from someone in Michigan, mm -hmm. you know, but we don't really have a big response about how the show is working other than articles or Do what. Do they like it on HBO? Or the, uh... yeah, yeah, I think HBO are really happy. Yeah. yeah. The, the reviews are really good. Happy. Yeah. Sure. Fans. It's, yeah. They yeah. Seem it's to just really barely like plural, it. though. So what happens <laughs> yeah, there's everybody says, knowing you in the street. Are. People are going to know you on the street. You're going to walk into a bank and, I know you, no, kid in hall. I don't think so. We all have the same face. The series premiered in September on the CBC, and reviews were just as glowing north of the 49th parallel. The Toronto Star wrote, Toto, I don't think we're in Danger Bay anymore. Can the kids in the hall come from the very same network that gave us Anna Green Gables and the Beachcombers? Can the scandalous, outrageous, insolent, downright dirty but hysterically funny show be on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation? Quick, call your member of parliament. Tell him or her to watch. It took 13 months to make the first season of The Kids in the Hall. It was a hard scrabble process putting each show together. A TV deal didn't sand off any of the troops' edges. They still battled over material, or anything, really. Years later, four of the kids came together to shoot a group interview for a DVD special feature. In it, they recounted some of their most memorable arguments. Uh, there was one really good fight, and Kevin, you're, Kevin is the one who remembers this, but do you remember the one where uh, uh, Scott's boot wound up in the filing cabinet in our offices? Oh, yes, and that was, that was so a that good was forever. What? And also the uh, one where he... Well, really, through the apple, and it hit the, the apple, fan, and it turned applesauce, and it came back, and went on, back on your face. And also the one where he uh, put broke. his foot through a chair, and then he got stuck in the chair, and then Rene, our AD, came over and tried to help him out. He said, no, you don't! No, you don't! Oh, the best one, though, was no. when we had a new producer named Joe Bodelai, and at his very first read-through, Scott read something like a 47-minute scene that didn't get one laugh. And he wasn't in a good place for it. And he started to flip out, and he really flipped out. And Joe Bodelai got smaller and smaller and smaller, because he was one like Fred he was sitting next to him on the couch. Yeah. As season one came to a close, news reached the kids that HBO wasn't picking them up for season two. If they were to stay alive, they would need Canadian broadcaster CBC to go all in on their transgressive sketch show. It appeared that their following didn't merit support from a premium cable channel. Would the National Canadian Broadcaster save them from cancellation? Can you make sure my mother doesn't see this? Premiering this Saturday on City. Mulroney, resign! Do it. Don't think about it. Do it. Have you ever wondered why the Toronto Sun's headlines never match the picture? It's obviously some sort of uh, conspiracy here. Do you know where you're going to be sleeping tonight? Do you? And do something about it. Tell them to stop it. It's a brand new show, Speaker's Corner. We're talking three in the afternoon, Saturday on City. As the series sat on the bubble, a bit of good news came the troops' way. Mark McKinney was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy Series. It doesn't exist now in a broadcast ecosystem that doesn't just consist of basic and premium cable channels, but streamers as well. However, in 1990, the Cable Ace Awards were the counterpart to the Emmys, celebrating the best of cable television. What must be made clear is that at this time, cable television wasn't yet in contention with network television for awards gold. 
This was pre-Sopranos, pre-Sex in the City, and pre-The Daily Show. The Cable Ace Awards existed for the best in cable television, which could only be recognized there. It was a long shot, a Hail Mary pass. But Mark McKinney, a kid from indistinct Canadian origins, was not the surefire recipient for this prize. Sure, he may have been the best actor of the group, the Peter Sellers-like chameleon. But what were his odds against someone like Gary Shandling? Next to Neil, no? The night came around for which the troupe had been flown to L.A., and Mark dressed in a tuxedo. He attended the ceremony, and when the category was called, Mark stood up and made his way to the podium to collect his trophy. He had just bested Gary Shandling. More importantly, this win would stay the executioner's axe. For HBO, the Cable Ace Award meant something. How could they cancel a show that had just picked up hardware off of one of their other shows? For the CBC, recognition in America made the kids in the hall just that much more attractive. Supporters like Ivan Fekin didn't have to work so hard in boardrooms to justify using taxpayer dollars to support this weird series. A series that was a little too subversive, and maybe a little bit too blue, and a lot too gay. Twelve months after the Cable Ace Awards, in December of 1990, the kids would pick up more hardware. The freshman series was awarded Best Variety Program, Best Performance in a Variety Program for the Troupe, and Best Writing in a Comedy or Variety Program at that year's Gemini Awards, the Canadian analog to the Emmy Awards. Thank you. Uh, the producers told us we only have 45 seconds to thank people, so... Uh, 45... We'd like to thank Yvonne Fasson, Carol Reynolds, Lauren Michaels, Cindy Park, uh, we love you, John Blanchard, thank you. Robert Boyd, thank you very much for uh, staying with us. Joe Forsell, thank you. At a time when CBC was still making The Tommy Hunter Show, Road to Avonlea, and Degrassi Junior High, they also managed to make something truly cool. It was unlike anything that had been on television before. It felt like a watershed moment in comedy. As Lauren Michaels had said, the kids in the hall were the future of comedy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett and presented by Knockabout Media. Co-produced with Sonia Jamidi, with additional voices by Matt Barnett and Sonia Jamidi. This was episode four, Guys in Dresses. In two weeks, I'll be back with episode five of our five-part series. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps get the podcast noticed. And we're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Knockabout Media. In researching this show, I relied heavily on This Book is About the Kids in the Hall by John Semley and One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian media ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. 
If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. There, you can follow the progress of my upcoming graphic novel biography on Buster Keaton. If you want to watch The Kids in the Hall, their entire CBC series is now available on Amazon Prime. Thanks for listening, and until next time. I've got a spike through my head. No, you don't. Yes, I've got a spike through my head. I've accepted it. Why can't you? I've got a spike through my head, a spike through my head, spike through my head, a spike through my head, a spike through my head. It's hard to look at, isn't it? Look at it. Read it. It says Pennsylvania Steel. Yes, I know I should be dead. Yes, the doctors say I'm a freak of nature. There's one thing I do know, damn it. I'm alive, and I love you. And that's the hardest thing of all to accept, isn't it, Connie? Enough about the media original. All done.